next on Contemplate. Prior to Jesus Christ and the change in the world that came from Christianity, there was nothing like the kind of charity and help that now exists in the world. That was Pastor David Robinson from Axe Church in Vancouver, Washington. And this is another Contemplate episode. Thanks for listening today as we continue our study from the book of Acts and see the amazing power of Jesus. Here's Pastor David. We're in chapter 9. We're in verse 32. Let's get going. It says, Now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt at Lydda. Okay. Um, we have Peter. We know that, Remember, if you remember back, we had Philip, and he went up to, the, to Samaria, and, and, and a bunch of people got saved and came to know Jesus, and the churches started there, and then Peter and John came up kind of behind him in his wake and sort of helped establish the church there, right? And then we saw Philip go down, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch uh, and, and he, in a chariot, and he comes, and, and he talks to that guy, and the guy accepts the Lord, and he gets baptized, and then, and then we see something happen with, uh, with Philip in Acts 8. I'm going to read you these verses, 39 and 40. It says this, Now when they came up out of the water, this is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Okay, so why are there Christians at Lydda where Peter is now in this verse? Let's look at the map. Hook me up with my map. All right. At the bottom of the map, you may be able to see at the very bottom, left-hand corner to you all, is a place called Ashdod. Same place as Azotus, okay? I didn't find a map that said Azotus. It says Ashdod. Same city. No difference, okay? Just a different name for that city. That is where (coughs) Philip was caught away to. So that's where he ended up. And then it says he went through all these, this region, these cities, up to Caesarea, which you'll see on the coast towards the top, maybe the top third of the map, you see Caesarea. Okay? Now, if you look from Ashdod or Azotus, up just a little ways, you'll see Lydda. Okay? So what probably happened, I think, is that Philip had gone through here and established the church in these towns and these cities uh, there in Lydda, Joppa, and so on, all the way up through to Caesarea. And once again, as we see Peter, who had come back to Jerusalem after his trip to Samaria, has gone back out now to help establish these churches. He ends up at Lydda, which I think was probably a church, or possibly anyway, a church that would have been established by Philip as he continued on in his missionary journey. Okay. So let's look at the next verse. It would be number 33. And it says, There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. So as I've been thinking about this story and and thinking about how to sort of uh, get my head into it and, and, and connect with the story and what's going on. I'm thinking about Aeneas and what his life must have been like. Well, it's a short sentence, right? All we know is that he's a guy and he's paralyzed and he's bedridden. That's all we know. We don't know that he's a believer even or anything else. We just know there's this guy and I'm trying to think how, how to connect with Aeneas and what he's going through. So I went on the internet and sort of looked for testimonials about what it's like to be paralyzed like that. And I came up with, with this uh, testimonial from a guy, and it says this. The cervical spinal injury, quadriplegia, necessitated me to lead a totally dependent life, tethered to the bed and wheelchair, 
Now I am like a man fettered for life, unable to use my hands and legs, incontinent and spoon-fed. Ironically, the most painful aspect of quadriplegia is the painlessness. It isn't mere loss of tactile inputs and outputs, but absolute dependence on someone else to accomplish mundane necessities and domestic chores that yoked me even for things like swabbing ears and swatting flies. So, here's this guy, Aeneas. He's been in bed for eight years. Eight years, and he, there's, there's no Americans with Disabilities Act there's no accommodations made, no electric wheelchairs, there's nothing like that. This guy just has to lay in bed and basically has to depend on the kindness of his family or friends or whatever to do things as, as mundane as swatting flies away from his face. But certainly much less and, and more uh, embarrassing things that would have had to be done for someone who couldn't do anything, keeping him clean and so on, feeding him and all the rest of that, right? And so this is this guy's experience. This is the world that Aeneas is in when Peter shows up in the power of Jesus. And let's see what happens as he does so. 934, it says, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. You'll notice here that Peter doesn't take any kind of credit for what's going on here. He says, Jesus, the Christ, heals you. Now, this is a very important statement that you could be missed by us sitting here in Camus in 2016. But for a first century Jew, who the big thing they're waiting for is the Messiah, the Christ. Okay, that word is Messiah. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. Aeneas almost certainly was a Jew. Uh, Peter wouldn't have been hanging out and kicking it with Gentiles at this period of time. We'll find out why in the next chapter. But this guy was almost certainly a Jew. Most of the folks in Lydda were Jewish, and he would have been waiting for the Messiah. We have no indication that prior to this that he's a Christian, or that he asked Peter to heal him, or that he had any kind of faith in Jesus, or anything like this. We just see Peter going to him saying, Jesus the Christ heals you, right? And so in that statement, he's saying, Jesus, of course this guy's heard of, this, you know, Jesus had been around, he'd been preaching all over the place, everybody knew who Jesus was, this guy who all these hundreds of people are saying rose from the dead and so on. So Peter's saying, Jesus is the Christ, and then follows it up with that he's healing this guy, right? So he makes a statement and then verifies it with the power of Christ in healing this man who was totally paralyzed. Um, it's a powerful statement. I think it's a little bit of a bummer that he says, get up and make your bed, right? So it's like, hey, you've been in this bed for eight years. You know, you're paralyzed and whatever. It's not get up and run around and feel the new fear. He says, get up and make your bed, guy. Um, but you know what? There's something to that. Because when we're in those tough places and we're like, oh, Lord, if you just get me out of this, or oh, Lord, I need healing, or whatever, let's not forget that when you do get out of it or when you do get healed, it's back to work, right? It's not get healed and it's all lollipops and butterflies. It's you get, you get healed or the Lord extricates you or gets you out of a situation, pulls you out of something difficult. But when he does, the expectation is, okay, let's get back to work. Let's get back to the work for the kingdom. Let's get back to work. Let's get back to life, right? So you could experience. Remember he said, this guy said the hardest thing was painlessness. The hardest thing was painlessness. But now it's like, hey, get back and here's a little pain. Make your bed. Um, so there, there we are. That's what he says to him. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 35, it says, So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So this guy has been healed and everybody 
Remember, he'd only been there eight years, but he was a man. He wasn't an eight-year-old. So at some point, he had been walking around, assumedly, right? Hadn't been in his bed. So people knew who he was, knew that he had been paralyzed. And then they see him walking around. They know that paralyzed people don't get up and walk around. And so they're like, what's up with that? And of course, he's saying, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. And it was through his power this guy's healed. And what happens? They turn. It says all of them. I don't know if it, if it literally means every single person in Lydda and Sharon. And Sharon is just kind of a, it's like a fertile plain um, in the Lydda and Joppa area. That map that you saw earlier that kind of stretches out for a ways. The people, all these people living in here are seeing this and they're turning to Jesus. So all these Christians come because Jesus has made a name for himself with the power in healing this guy. Let's go to the next verse, verse 36. It says that Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. Okay, so uh, Joppa is an ancient seaport. Um, if you remember from the map, it was just kind of up to the northwest of Lydda. I think it's about 11 miles away from Lydda, about 35 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And this is the place actually where Jonah went when he was fleeing. When the Lord told him, go to Nineveh, he goes to Joppa to get on a boat to Tarshish. So it was around that long ago when Jonah was around. That He's the guy with the big fish that eats him, if you guys have seen Veggie Tales or read a Bible, whatever. In either case, that's, that's, uh, that's who Jonah is, right? And so he was at Joppa. This city's been around a long time. It's an important seaport, okay? Um, that's, where we're, that's where we are at. And Tabitha... Dorcas, you know, I've been called that a lot of times. I didn't know it was a compliment about this woman who was wonderful in the Lord. I thought it meant something different based on context, but I'm cool with it. Um, Dorcas means gazelle. Tabitha means gazelle. That's what it means, okay? So this is actually quite a nice name, and Tabitha is the Aramaic, and Dorcas is the Greek, okay? I think I would prefer the Aramaic if I was her, but that's my thing. In any case, that's, so you see Greek influence, right? So the Greek influence was strong. A lot of people have these Aramaic names and these, or these Hebrew names and these Greek names. And she has that, okay? It says that she was full of good works and charitable deeds. So we know um, this is a disciple of Christ. This is a follower of Christ. And we know that she's doing all kinds of charitable things and good deeds for the Lord. Let's look at the next couple of verses, 37 and 38. It says, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. The first thing I notice about this is that we've just been told how good of a woman Tabitha is. That she's a, that she's a good woman, full of good works. And then we hear that she got sick and died. Now, um, I think we struggle sometimes. I know I have in the past just thinking through it, I'd say philosophically, with this idea of why do bad things happen to good people? We're clearly told she's a good person. She's doing all these good things, right? No one's good, but through the power of Jesus Christ, we absolutely can be, and she was, and she was doing all these good works for the kingdom of God, and yet she gets sick and dies. There are some who would tell you that, you know, if you're really with the Lord, you can't get sick or die. They're full of it, okay? Because she did, right? Proof text. So, she is a person who loves the Lord, who's doing good works, and yet she gets sick and died. And I think that we sometimes struggle with that. I don't have time to go into why bad things happen to good people or how God can be good and yet bad things can happen right now. But we did, again, the Skeptics Forum back in, I think, February, I think it's week five, we talked about the problem of pain 
If you struggle with that question, go back and take a look at that message. And if you still don't, um, aren't satisfied, come talk to me. I love to talk about that kind of stuff. But well, that's what we see happening here. We see somebody who's good and, and, and she gets sick and she dies. It says they washed her body, which was normal in this time period. You would have washed a body, anointed it, prepared it for burial. So that's what they've done. And then I don't know why they went to get Peter. I don't know why. Um, you know, it says he was nearby. He was 11 miles away, which may be no big deal for us. Some of you may live 11 miles from here, but that's with a car, right? These guys are sandals and dirt roads, so 11 miles doesn't seem that close to me. But they sent these guys to go get Peter, and I don't know um, if it was because these are young believers, uh, because we know the church is relatively new, right? And they're struggling with this idea that I'm talking about. How was this person who was serving the Lord and doing all this good stuff, why did she get sick and die and needed to hear from an apostle and have some explanation of that? I don't know. I don't know if they needed them to come and comfort them. I'm not sure why they were saying to do the funeral. I'm not sure what the deal was, but they wanted Peter. They knew he was nearby, 11 miles away. They wanted Peter to come to them. And so in the next verse, 939, it says this. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. Um, he got up and went. You know, I don't know that I'd get up and go walk 11 miles to a funeral, but he did. He, he, he saw the need, whatever exactly that need was, he saw that it was there and he got up and he went to go uh, see what was going on with this thing. I doubt that he would have known this woman, but he may have known her by reputation. It sounds like she was uh, quite a gal. And the really cool thing about this little verse, this little section, I think is just so amazing, is that as he walks in, you have all these widows, all these people whose lives this woman has touched, literally holding physically up for him so he can see her good works. So he can see, you know, the love of Christ that was in this woman. They're sitting there holding up all these things that she's sown for these widows. These, these widows who would have been destitute, again, they can't just go and get, um, uh, you know, assistance or something like that. They rely on the charity of other people. And Tabitha is a woman who has done so. She has been literally sewing together. You couldn't go to Walmart back then. Okay, you had to sew your clothes, even make the fabric, right? So this was diligent, hard work that she had done. And here are these people holding up her good works, physically holding up her good works. I think we all hope that at the, the time that we die, and there's a funeral or however it works, that there will be some evidence of the love we had for Christ in our life and for other people. That while I may not sew anything, and if I did, you probably wouldn't want to hold it up um, because it wouldn't be good, but... There are things that I do and there are things that you do and we hope that in, that in that day, the things that will be in our wake, the things that are on the path behind us are good works, are people who have been helped, are people who will say, hey, this person showed me the love of Christ, which is exactly what they're saying. They're crying, they're sad, they're showing the things that she's done. They're saying, hey, Peter, this is a woman who loved Christ and loved us. What an amazing testimony. I've talked about the last couple of times, I think we've talked about the idea of you, know, you don't have any idea how far the ripples of your obedience will go. You have no idea how far the ripples of your obedience will go. We're talking about like a, like a rock hitting the water and those ripples go out. That rock being your obedience to God and the bigger the rock, the bigger the ripples, the farther they go. Well, take a look at this woman. Um, we know that to this very day, there are societies named after her. Wikipedia tells us this. A Dorcas society 
which again, unfortunate name, is a local group of people usually based in a church with a mission of providing clothing to the poor. Dorcas societies are named after Dorcas, also called Tabitha, a person described in the Acts of the Apostles. One Dorcas society was founded in Douglas, Isle of Man, in December 1834 as part of the community's thanksgiving for being spared from an outbreak of cholera. Other Dorcas societies were established by missionaries in the Americas in the early 1800s. Beatrice Cluxton founded the Glasgow Royal Dorcas Society in 1864. One English Dorcas society in Sydenham met during five Tuesdays in Lent, producing 166 garments in one year. Dorcas societies were at their height in the 1800s, but there are still Dorcas societies around the world providing clothing and other physical need. This woman's love and good works are being celebrated than imitated 2,000 years later. This woman who's from a place that many of you may have never heard of before we mentioned it here today. You may have read it over it quickly in the scripture or something, but you've never thought about Joppa before. So this woman who lived in Joppa 2,000 years ago who just simply worked with her hands to help people out. To this day, 2,000 years later, the people who are naming societies after her and doing good works because of what she did in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing when you think about the ripples of her obedience and what it might be if you are obedient, what those ripples might look like. So she's committed to others. Well, actually, the King James Version uses the word almsgiving, right? We, we use the word charity. Charity means giving, giving to people, to poor people or to people who are in need or whatever. That's charity, right? Or you can even call the, 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 the entity that does that a charity. Or we can use the word charity to mean um, showing tolerance to somebody. Oh, you're being charitable towards that person, you know, because of their personality or whatever it happens to be, right? But the word charity is actually a Christian word. It's, it's used to mean Christian love. That's what the word originally means. If you go back and look at what the English word charity means, if you read in the older versions of the Bible, the more Englishy versions of the Bible, right? It says faith, hope, and charity, not faith, hope, and love. Charity is Christian love. We now use the word that was originally for Christian love to describe all this type of stuff where you help people out, where you do good things for people, right? Charitable hospitals, orphanages, all these things. These are things that flow from Christianity that flow from following Christ. Prior to Jesus Christ and the change in the world that came from Christianity, there was nothing like the kind of charity and help that now exists in the world. If something bad happens in another country, we get together here in America and we take up money and we send it to them. You don't hear about that. We read about the Egyptians back in Genesis and they, had, they were all starving. You don't hear that the people in Mesopotamia or Syria were taking up a collection and sending it to them. It didn't exist. And it didn't exist. This is a Christian principle that we sacrifice and that we give and that we're charitable towards others. And it has, it has gone all the way 2,000 years to continue today to be a, high, a thing that we put high praise on in our society. And many of us don't even realize that even the word charity is a Christian word. But this woman was, she embodied this. She embodied this. Okay. Um, let's look at the next couple of verses, 40 and 41. It says, but Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It's pretty impressive. Um, here we see the second major miracle of this section. Tabitha is raised from the dead. And here's the thing. I, don't know. I mean, I know Peter had seen people raised from the dead before. He had been with Jesus and so on. But this has got to be a little freaky, right? 
And you tell the person to get up and their eyes open up and, you know, in front of you. I would be a little tripped out by that. Even if I knew you know, it's the power of Jesus and so on, it would trip me out a little bit to see somebody rise from the dead. But here's Peter in this situation. But he had been in almost this exact situation before. Almost exactly. We look at the story of Jairus' daughter with Jesus. And I'm going to read it to you from Mark. It's actually in Matthew 9, 23 through 25 also. But I'm going to read you from Mark 5. Starting at verse 40, last part of verse 40, it says, But when he had put them all outside, this is Jesus, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him, which included Peter, by the way. If you read a little earlier in the section, we know that Peter's one of the disciples that's with Jesus at this time. Goes in with Jesus and entered where the child was lying. Okay, this child was dead. This is Jairus' daughter. It says, Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. Now, look at the similarities of these two stories, right? We have, it's basically the same thing. Peter comes in, he tells people to leave, here he prays, he tells, the, he tells her to get up, she gets up, and, and here we go. Um, it is so similar, in fact, that this is very interesting to me, maybe it won't be to you, we'll see. Um, but the words that Jesus uses and the words that Peter uses, there's only one letter of difference between when Jesus says to the little girl, Talitha, kumi, that's little girl, get up, and Peter says to this woman, Tabitha, kumi, there's only one letter different. Talitha means little girl, Tabitha was her name, and, and so it's so similar that it shows, it's just one of those things that I think is there in Scripture to show us what it looks like to be a disciple. You're literally doing exactly what you've seen the Master do. What you've seen the Master do, which is our calling as well, to see how Jesus walked and to walk like him. Okay? Uh, so Peter is a true disciple. I don't know that he knew when he was coming there that this woman was going to be raised from the dead. I don't know that he knew until the moment that maybe the Holy Spirit revealed to him as he's praying next to her body and says, tell her to get up. And it would have taken amazing faith, in my opinion, to say to a dead body, get up. It would be because it's embarrassing if it doesn't happen, right? Um, that's why you send everybody out of the room, I guess. But in any case, it would, be, it would take a lot of faith, right? Most of us would feel uncomfortable about that, but Peter's got this incredible faith, and he's seen the Master do it. He knows the power of Jesus Christ. So, do you know the power of Jesus Christ? Truth is, a healing like we just heard about is the easy stuff. The amazing and more important is the power that forgives sins and changes a life for eternity. Do you know that power? Well, you can. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing right now, simply ask Jesus to forgive your sins, acknowledge Him as your Lord, and ask Him to save you. And you know what? He will. And if you need help or still have questions about all this, call us at 360-885-9000. Or come see us at Axe Church this Sunday morning. Get all the info you need at axechurchnw.org. Hope to meet you this Sunday. Thanks for listening, and be sure and check out the next episode here on Contemplate.